Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine. Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. On SAFM. Five minutes after two. Thank you so much for staying with us. A, a new book sets out to explain why it's time for Africa to relook at food security, uh, particularly in urban areas. On the line with us is Dr. Gareth Haysom, who is a researcher at the Africa Center of uh, Cities at UCT. And it is really, really important to distinguish what it is that we mean when we speak about African cities, because it's very different to cities in in other parts of the world and why it is much, much harder for us to deal with food security in urban African cities. What is the cause of this? And one of the things that we need to be very clear about, it's not because of the production of food. And they go out to unpack exactly where does then it stop. If we don't have production problems, then what else is the problem? Dr. Haysom is with us on the line. Good afternoon, Dr. Haysom. Good afternoon, Tola. Good afternoon to your listeners as well. It, 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 it's not a, you know, it's not something that we don't understand, particularly in South Africa. There's lots of food that goes to waste. We know that. Still, within the same city, there are lots of people who are going hungry. What's behind that? So, uh, there, there are many things, one of which is obviously poverty and the fact that people, and I suppose the main problem is, as you said in the introduction, Food security and having enough food is often assumed to be about growing enough food and growing more food. But it's really about how people are able to buy that food, how they're able to share food and exchange it, what we call how they access food. And the city, number one, constrains that ability to access food, but equally things like poverty or time poverty or other costs also limit that. Um, And so these multiple costs and related challenges converge to make it very difficult for for people living on the margins of cities to be able to really get the kind of nutritious food that they might want. So so oftentimes, yes, one may get access to some form of food, but when you look at the geographical nature of where a person is located, they're not able to grow their own food. They live very far away from where there is access to proper food and nutritious food. So that transport cost is something that we need to take into account as well. Equally, yes, completely. And and that cost comes into it. But the same is given our spatial inequities and the history that we have, people yeah. living on the periphery in neighborhoods where they might be living in backyards, etc. They might even have to walk, you know, so there's not just the, the transport cost, but even imagining catching two or three taxis yeah. home mm-hmm. to get home. A mother who wants to provide food for their children, get home to a child who's six years old, who might be hangry, hungry and angry at the same time. Mm-hmm might buy a guinea or something on the mm. side of the road and because when they get home they want to be able to feed that so it's it's the transport and the costs that come with the food but equally the the inequalities of our spatial layouts of our cities that also impact on the food outcomes of many households and ask, the cost let me so. ask that people call in um dr Haysom, because i think this is quite a, an interesting conversation i'm going to ask that we open the lines on 011-714-2006 i'm also going to open the whatsapp note on 0614-104-107 your experiences yeah. of why people are going hungry in modern cities in the continent love to hear from you FM in Bombela. 
Dr. Gareth Hampson is a researcher at the Africa City Center of Cities at UCT on the line with us. And we're discussing um, food security in, in African cities. Why is it that we need to really have a fresher look as to why we have the kind of food insecurity that we are faced with? Um, Dr. Hampson, let's talk about what what needs to be done so that there is a shift. In other words, because we, we've got time constraints, so you do have, as you gave an example, of, of a working mother who arrives home quite late, long day, hasn't got really the time to be sitting and cooking beans, for instance, um, where also the idea of sitting and cooking beans, depending on how long it takes and the energy it takes, it's a cost by itself. How, how are we going to manage to move away from the most accessible foods, which are generally more uh, unhealthy, to a much more healthier diet in the cities, in, in, in African urban cities? I think, I think, for me, it's a great question because I think the real challenge is to really think who wakes up and worries about food in cities. And because of our colonial history, because of the way food has evolved and understanding it, it's always been seen as a rural question, as we said. And as a result of this, cities don't have departments who look after food. Cities Mm. don't have ministries of food as we might have the Department of Agriculture, Rural Development and Land Reform. Mm. They're responsible for food in South Africa and the across African continent, the Malabo Declaration has 10% of GDP being allocated to sort of food and rural development. But cities are absent in how across Africa the food question is understood. And in cities, to be clear, cities are doing a lot about food. They are authorizing the building of shopping malls. They are giving permits to informal vendors. They are policing informal vendors. They are managing health and safety. But this is all happening in siloed individual departments. No one is trying to understand how a city can provide health and wellness through its food system. And for us, I don't think it's necessary about having a ministry of food in the city mm-hmm. There are cities doing fantastic work from Arusha to Tana, Madagascar, to even there's resilience department in the city of Cape Town, uh, trying to understand how the city can manage its food system. I think for me, the first thing is not just around what they do, but equally when a city has a mandate, it often then gets fiscal allocations to help them resource that to do it effectively. So... a few things are happening. I'm I'm seeing that, especially um, with COVID having presented itself, yes. that you do have a lot of private feeding schemes going on at the moment, uh, food banks, let's call them that. Um, but perhaps where we need to go is in, 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 because they are working in silos, in managing how we're going to make sure that, you know, they are accessible to more people, for instance, better managed and that they're better resourced. Is that a start or, or, or are we clutching at straws there? Completely. I think for me, given the current situation and, and a colleague of mine, Jane Bassey, said this in the Daily Maverick, what we have, we don't just have a short term crisis. It's really important to respond to that crisis mm. now. Mm. But equally, we have this longer term, far longer historical crisis that has been with us for a long time. It's been hidden because it happened often in private, with shame, etc., yep. in the household. Yep. And so it's not necessarily political. It doesn't mm. gain the same level of political mm. attention. And so we have both. We need to address the immediacy of, immediacy of the issues 
and we need to be able to respond through the feeding schemes, etc. But equally, we need to be able to kind of deal with these longer-running systemic questions. Dr. Haysom, I'm yet to meet anybody who loves a handout, um, a food handout. It, it's shameful, as you said. Yeah. Um, so is, is the, the solution dealing with the food or is poverty part of the problem? Poverty is definitely part of the problem. And as it links that often directly to access, but it's not the only part of the problem. Mm. Increasing the social grant is not going to help the fact that someone, the Mm. transport systems don't work or Mm. the energy, you know, that there is a challenge with energy supply or that the costs of energy are increasing significantly. Mm. Because uh, as has been pointed out by, by, by many, one of the only negotiable parts of a household budget is often the food budget. So energy prices are fixed, transport, school mm-hmm. fees, mm-hmm. the burial kind of commitments to burial saving groups, etc., are all fixed. And so when incomes fluctuate, people discount on the food. They might have less diverse foods, mm-hmm. they might skip meals, etc. Mm-hmm. So certainly the whole issue, one needs to be able to have employment and to create that opportunity. But equally, we need to be able to regulate and we need to be able to manage the food system in a way that it can be health providing. Um, We need to have a diverse food system as well. So what our work shows is that people use the food system in a variety of ways. They might buy the staples on the discount at the supermarket. But a large pocket of potatoes, when one is working and getting money on a daily basis, is not going to be affordable. You'd rather then go to the informal vendor and buy one or two potatoes and maybe a single egg, etc. So how the system responds to the needs of individuals needs to be enabled and unlocked far more and be able to operate in ways that are able to respond to the food needs of the majority of South Africans. It's complicated because as exactly as you said it, you know, so someone who lives in an informal settlement, the assumption actually is that all of us have a fridge, right? But, But actually there are a lot of South Africans, urban South Africans who, for instance, in an informal settlement do not have decent uh, energy connectivity. So there is no fridge. In other words, that food they're going to eat should either only be eaten on that day and finished on that day, or it cannot be food that will be stored because it's you know it's going to go, to go off. Right, and and that means that the food is possibly more expensive and and, and things like that. Yeah, definitely, and so yeah, oh, we we've also done this this work, and the title of the book that we produce is called Tomatoes and Taxi Ranks, and mm. we reflect these two different kinds of tomatoes. Yeah, if you're buying a tomato and you have a fridge, it will be sort of a a funny yellowy, greeny, reddy color. Yes. But if you don't have a fridge, that you know, and you walk in the you know the informal settlement area or whatever, yes. where you might be buying from a street vendor, the tomato is bright red. It's yes. going to be consumed today. It's not you know, so it's not going to be packaged for transport, etc. But uh, exactly, and so in a strange way, in many or a strange way, what the the consumers are very knowledgeable. So. Why worry about paying for a fridge if it's unreliable? Let me rather use the street as my fridge. Let me rather use the street as my stove. Mm. So we see in in many of the African countries the proliferation of the informal economy Mm. because that's where you get that daily meal on a fresh basis. And it's fresh. You can understand it. You you have relationships with vendors that you know where the food is fresh. And so the African food system isn't this 
Dracaene food system, that, you know, the Parisian food system, or whatever one might imagine in the supermarkets. It's a, a hybrid. It's, it's really something that's far more dynamic, responding to the needs and the limitations. So it's not to be over-celebrated of the informal. There are challenges, mm-hmm. and uh, etc. But it, the, the food system is often responsive to the limitations in the urban space so, around infrastructure and planning and, and those sort of things as well. So, so I'm listening to you now and I'm thinking, okay, if, if that is something we can at least look at and say we have at least that, why then are municipalities not supporting those street vendors? You know, you hear stories of them not getting adequate sanitation, for instance, for working out in the street. We don't have proper facilities for them to cook that food. Why aren't we supporting that? And the, I, I, mean, there, there, I think there are a number of reasons for that. One is that, again, it's, it's this question of mandate, mm-hmm. the question of understanding. I think the cities are really trying to understand the informal economy now, mm-hmm. uh, for want of a better description. Mm-hmm. They're fantastic models around um, Warwick Junction, where the city of you know, Durban and, and the vendors worked really well together. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're really good case studies around that. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think we are also stuck, if we think of some of the street clearances, etc. we are stuck with a, an imagination often of a world-class city and what that might be. So there are those particular dynamics that come with that. Mm-hmm. I think we also faced with a, a challenge of not the informal economy itself is not necessarily always able to speak with one voice. Mm. And often, so they, who, do, who does one speak to, etc. So that's another part of the challenge. But as you say, there are there is this diverse economy that people make use of, from the informal street trader right the way through to to the formal supermarkets. And how do how do we unlock that? And again, I go back to cities, thinking if you had a an objective to mm-hmm. try and make the health the food system more health providing, more nutritious, mm-hmm. more affordable, would you think of the informal economy in a different way? And cities are starting to do that, mm-hmm. but it does require both officials who are worrying about that, and it changes at times in legislation, but equally it requires a political imperative to authorize those officials to do that work. So what does it look like? What, what does that look like in, in your mind? So in my mind, I think every city is different. So every city needs to respond to its own needs. Mm. I think it can't happen without understanding the broader system, so where food is coming from. So it does ask for a, a very different approach to governing food. Where people have voice and where people are able to articulate what they want, I think society can be involved because there's great knowledge in the various different neighborhoods in the household of how to navigate these systems. But I think for me, one of the primary areas of entry, and admittedly this is some of the work that I'm focusing on, is what we call food-sensitive planning and design. So how can you plan and how can design of cities and spaces be sensitive to the food needs? And how can they then start to think, if we're going to build a shopping mall, and that might bring jobs, etc., is it going to be able to provide the health and nutrition? Is it displacing existing food systems that communities have? Is it disrupting existing networks that might exist? How are those decisions made? Planners have hundreds of laws that they have to abide by when they're trying to make a decision, so Mm. it's not to layer more onto that. But do we need a, a form of environmental assessment like you would do for the environment around a food systems assessment before decisions are made? How does that work? In 
the work that we've done in China, for example, mm. as the city grows, the city, if they authorize the expansion of any development, they are then mandated to put markets in place mm. and to control and make sure that they're hygienic, as you said, mm. make sure that they have sanitation, mm -hmm. access to water, energy, etc., mm -hmm. so that those markets can provide fresh, healthy foods to the society. Are there models elsewhere that we can look to and also try to take on? So what about using existing infrastructure? Because, you know, that would also mean if we're going to wait for new developments, that may take a while. So I, I know that we, we've got some sort of a feeding scheme program in schools. Let me first ask you how that's going. Is, did, did that help at all? That, that's critical for, for many. And I think the, the legacy, I think, of the children who, are, who didn't, weren't able to get food during the lockdown period is going to be with us for a very long time. So I would agree. Those infrastructures and those processes need to be fully supported. And it's almost that's where some of our greatest attention needs to be paid to ensure that those are able to be more robust and sustainable, certainly. Dr. Hazem, my problem with the feeding scheme at schools is that, again, we are reliant on how we categorize those students, mm -hmm. those beneficiaries. And you and I spoke about shame that comes with not yeah. having and circumstances that shame ever so rapidly. So I would hate for anybody to say, yesterday I had the money, today I'm completely poor, oh. I don't have it. It's going to take a while for the system to recognize that. Can we not have a universal system, completely universal, where children who go to school are fed? Definitely. And, and this is what a number of people, countries do, and they do provide that. Uh, sort of, um, for, for a long time, milk, re-diverting surplus milk into areas and trying to get that through. I understand it requires a huge change in the system. Mm. It requires the state to have money that it doesn't necessarily have. But this needs to happen. So for me, the greatest challenge is the children in utero now. Those mm. first mm. thousand days, mm. what's happening for a pregnant mother mm. and what's happening in the first thousand days of life, that is setting the developmental trajectory of so many of South Africans and so many of Africans. And we're about, we're in sort of generation, the generational boom. UNICEF in 2017, sort of generation 2.0 in Africa. If we, if that nutrition isn't received, if that, those children aren't provided with what they need, there is a developmental inhibitor placed on them already. And will Africa then rise? And I think for us, this is the urgency. We have to respond to that now and, 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 and try and resolve these issues in a universal way, as you rightly say. Do you think there's the will to do that? I, I think COVID has shown us that there are there is an extreme urgency and a need to respond i worked very closely with some fascinating researchers in both state and academia after the 2007-8 crisis and when the crisis left us we everything reverted to normal and i think for us the imperative now is to see the crisis that COVID has presented particularly around food mm -hmm. and maintain the momentum maintain the sort of universal care that we've shown for everyone to try and make sure that that certainly that food becomes something that stays on the agenda and particularly food in cities and particularly as Africa urbanizes how food becomes central to that developmental thinking I think for me it's going to be one of the great developmental challenges of the next 50 years 
Dr. Hasem, I've got a voice note coming through and I've also got some calls. Let's start taking uh, a sure. voice note. Uh, good afternoon uh, uh, to you, Pimelo, and to your guest. Uh, my observation uh, is uh, urban areas, people are not giving enough uh, land. Uh, you cannot uh, have a garden at, uh, at, at, at the urban areas. You'll only rely on farm farmers, nearby farmers, for to, to get fresh produce. You cannot uh, uh, plant your own uh, uh, vegetables. That's one uh, issue that will uh, perpetuate this issue of uh, uh, hunger, especially in urban areas. Uh, that's my take, actually. Uh, Thank you very much. Your comments, Prof? Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. If there is a, a access to land, but also that that soil is healthy. Mm. So if there are spaces that where there has been exhaust fumes, etc., but also equally access to water. And I'm based in Cape Town, seeing how many wonderful gardens had to really battle to get water. So I think it's not just land, it's around water, it's around the quality of the land. But I do have a caution around sort of seeing this as the ultimate solution for three reasons. One is it expects the poorest of the poor to do the work that is actually a systemic problem that's coming from a broader system. And I think it's unfair to place the burden on them to have to solve their own problems. Mm. But if they can, fantastic, and be part of that. Secondly, given what I said about cities, I think it needs to then be part of a wider urban development and an urban food focus. Mm. It needs to be inculcated. It can't be a set of projects opened by CSI or whatever, beneficial as it is. It needs to be part of something far broader. And thirdly, I think it also, it need, we need to ask why does this have to be such a, uh, why is food so urgent? What do we do with people who need area, land for housing in our cities? How do we densify the cities? How do we prevent sprawl, etc.? And is that always the right answer? In the Western Cape, I would say, I don't know so much because of our soils and access to water. Elsewhere where it's fertile and where there's more land and the city is able to respond to that. So again, I think it's contextual across South Africa and Africa. Colin is calling from Cape Town. Good afternoon, Colin. Good afternoon, Pamela, and good afternoon to your guests. Afternoon. Go ahead, Colin. You know, I was in the UK, in Wales, and I used to, uh, during the day, go pick up my little granddaughter, you know, while I was on holiday there, my wife and myself. And um, they used to have a lunch at school every single day in the summertime and the winter, you know. And they never, they had free education there, but it was a minimum fee for each child, each school had a lunch, a cooked meal. You take your little slice of bread or two in the morning, but come 12 o'clock, you have your lunch. Now, that took a lot of pressure off my daughter than to cook. Ask, what did you have for lunch? Oh, yeah, I had nice, I had this, I had that. Okay, then you've had your vegetables, you had everything. So I'll make you something light tonight, you know, or something like that. Another thing too is we should have, uh, uh, I heard you mention uh, already existing buildings or something like that. The supermarkets, why can't they have like a, a, a vegetable and fruit market inside that supermarket just for the people in uh, those rural areas close by, then they can go there every time and, and get it at, at a cost. The government can also subsidize school feedings. No help 
all these NGOs, handouts, and this and that. The government is squandering such a lot of money in this country that they can subsidize every school in this country also and give the kids a cooked meal every day. The government must step in and realize, instead of going, wasting, changing, roads changing, uh, cities changing, buildings changing this and changing that, we are wasting too much money, this government. Thank you, Pumela. Thanks, Colin. Thanks for for giving us a lot of food for thought, excuse me, there. But it's it's a lot for us to think about, and I and I at least you've brought it up, um, uh, Doctor Hasten, and and at least it's something that all of us can at least think about and carefully and see how we can be part of the solution. Thank you. Thanks so much, man. Thank you, and thanks to all the listeners. Dr. Gareth Hasem is a researcher at the Africa Center of Cities at UCT. That brings us to 2.30. Let me go to Anne Musa for the latest in headlines.